fine, no big deal. Oh, okay, so we'll go on to, uh, we'll go on to, I was looking at anybody, I was looking for any answer, not just you. You're always my answer guy. I know, that's fine. All right, okay, so we'll go on to shock. Those questions then? Nope. <laughs> nope. I was fine. I just meant like, no. looking at me. Oh, I'm sorry. I always look at you. Uh, nope, but if someone wrote them down, they can certainly write them up there. You guys can talk about them over break. I don't often give that directive of a question, so you can, you'll, 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 you'll figure them out. Okay. Shock. All right, shock. Overall, with shock, inadequate tissue perfusion that um, impairs cellular function and ultimately can lead to organ failure. Shock, um, shock is rapidly progressive. Early detection is absolutely key. We catch shock early, a lot of times we can get in front of it. It affects younger people and older people alike. It's not just an elderly or an older person disease that's septic in, in the hospital. So um, I have had patients, young patients die of shock and old patients die of shock. So really um, can, uh, can affect, so it's not discriminatory. All right, so with normal cellular function, you know, kind of tracing back to your A and P, um, our, our, our cells need what they need. They need ATP, they need um, oxygenation. <coughs> when um, they need um, the ATP to um, have anaerobic metabolism. So if, if our, our cells with the, or have aerobic metabolism, our cells what they need, they, um, they're, they're just fine. Um, our blood pressure, we need, um, in order to get adequate tissue perf perfusion, we need a mean arterial pressure of 65 or greater. 70 to 110 is normal. Less than 60 um, is, or 60 is absolutely required for minimal tissue perfusion, okay? So adequate is 65, 60, we are in, you know, that trouble. We talked about, you know, our um, blood pressure and management, that sort of thing. Um, stroke volume is pulse pressure and systolic, um, and there's our pulse pressure. So, you know, there's some there's some um, reasoning behind it where they look at when when you're um, when you have a narrowed pulse pressure, um, they can say that that's tied to shock. So, your pulse pressure um, might be or your blood pressure might be 100 over 80. So, you only have maybe a narrow wind, more narrow window instead of 40. Maybe you're only 20. So, they're a little bit closer together. All right. So in shock, instead of having that wonderful aerobic metabolism, there's widespread reduction in tissue perfusion for whatever reason. All shock progresses through the same stages, no matter if it's anaphylactic shock or septic shock. They all progress the same way. But there's an imbalance between oxygen supply and demand. So it, need, you know, it doesn't have the oxygen you need. Our perfusion is low. Our mean arterial blood pressure is low. So, Delivery of oxygen into the cells is inadequate, resulting in anaerobic metabolism. As a result of that anaerobic metabolism and through the whole chemistry, pathophysiology nature of it, our body um, doesn't, it, 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 it re the result of that anaerobic metabolism results in lactic acid. So that is an, a big, write that down, put a star next to it. Lactic acid is a lab value, our lactate levels or our lactic acid levels are a big lab value that we look at to see the progression of, of, of shock. 
So when our cells die, um, or swell up and they die, then that leads to lactic acidosis. When we get into um, respiratory, um, next section, we're gonna talk about um, ABGs, and when we get into acidosis, shock is one cause that can cause alterations in our lab values. Normal lactate levels are 0.5 to 1. We've got a little case study at the end of this, and we'll look at, you know, compare our patients' lactic acid levels to what um, All right, so different kinds of shock. Again, all shock progresses through the same stages. So we're going to talk about different kinds, but no, you know, when we go through the, you know, the stages, no way. So hypovolemic, we have had an actual loss of intravascular volume. And when I say intravascular volume, I think I have a couple slides um, down here that uses the train track the theme. You know, think about your train tracks. Your train tracks are where your blood heads through. Those are your blood vessels, your, you know, arteries in your veins. You need, um, particularly your arteries, you need enough blood flow in your train tracks to have tissue perfusion. If you don't have enough volume, it's hypovolemic shock, okay? So your blood vessels are the normal diameter, you know, like right there on your door, normal diameter, um, but you don't have enough fluid to fill that, what's your CVP gonna be? Low. Low, absolutely, good. Um, can happen with um, blood, gunshot wounds, trauma, burns, dehydration, ascites. Ascites is the tissue, or the, the fluid third spaces into your abdomen. So for whatever reason, you don't have enough circulating volume. Cardiogenic shock, you actually have pump failure. When you have pump failure, your, your, the wall of your heart isn't pumping, it is not moving the blood. You have hypoperfusion. Your mean arterial pressure is gonna be too low to get the, you know, the blood where it needs to go. So your train tracks you know, might be the same, but your poor heart can't get the blood to go through them. So with cardiogenic shock, a lot of times we look at reducing afterload. So trying to, you know, trying to help um, make it easier for our heart to pump or maybe a balloon pump. Um, I don't focus too much, we, we've kind of cardioed you guys out. So when we get to, you know, to this, um, it's just really looking at pump failure. How do we manage that? The ones that, that we really focus on probably the most are hypovolemic and circulatory. Circulatory is just fascinating to me. Your blood, you know, your, your blood vessels basically completely vasodilate for whatever reason. In anaphylactic shock, there's the histamine response. And it, and it, it down peripherally, it stimulates vasodilation um, at that vascular level, and your blood vessels just go limp and dilate. So your blood pressure was 110 when your blood vessels were like this, but now your blood vessels are like this, your systolic blood pressure might be 80 because you've got the same circulating volume, but you've got you know, this, these huge blood vessels to fill. So it's termed distributed side shock. And all of these different kinds, anaphylactic, neurogenic, and septic are all considered distributed shock. The problem is massive blood vessel vasodilation. So in order to maintain perfusion, we need a pump, we need circulating fluid, and we need vessels. So depending on whatever the problem is, if it's distributed, you've got a problem with your vessels. If it's hypovolemic, you have a problem with, with not enough fluid. And with cardiogenic, you don't have a pump. So I always, where's my pump? So keeping the heart must generate the power necessary. Um, circulating fluid, you need cargo on board. Um, to carry um, oxygen and tissues and remove the waste products. 
and um, the vessels are your train tracks, the resistance and the capacity. Um, they must be um, capable of responding to hormonal stimulation. And sympathetic nervous system response, your, your vessels are so terribly vasodilated, they aren't even responding to that. So we will have, we'll talk about how we do this. Okay, looking at these three, when we look at shock, write those three big, those are the big three, Dece decreased blood pressure, increased pulse, increased respiratory rate. It's our body's main way of compensating. I'll send you this video because it's a really good video. Well, it's another good video. Okay, so stages of shock. Your textbook and your ATI um, are a little different, um, a little bit different. Early reversible and compensatory, they combine in your textbook, um, and uh, ATI breaks it down to early reversible and then compensatory. Um, and then we have immediate or progressive or progressive immediate, refractory or irreversible or irreversible. So I will make it clear if I have questions, you know, is this a is our body trying to compensate? Is this an early phase or is this a late phase? So I'll be very clear on you know, what I'm asking there. Okay, so our patient, no matter what the cause, this could be cardiogenic, this could be um, septic, this could be any, they're all going, all types of shock progress to the same on the same phases. So early phase, no matter what, blood pressure a lot of times is gonna remain normal. It might just be slightly decreased. Our pulse slightly increased from baseline. We don't know what's going on. This patient doesn't look terribly bad. Respiration's normal, usually about our baseline. Alert and oriented. Our renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system might be sensing something before we do. Their urine output might be decreased. They might be a little thirsty because their body's sensing. They don't have what they need. They need some fluid volume for whatever reason. Decreased re um, cap refill time. When I think about this patient, you remember the very beginning of the semester, I talked about my compartment syndrome lady and she had that bleed. Um, if I hadn't caught her um, hypovolemia in the early phase, she would have progressed through the phases of shock. So it's catching it early and reversing whatever the cause is, okay? Um, and so, um, if we, the only way we would know, actually know, unless we, you know, really, um, you know, you keep a close eye on your patient and watch for trends. Is that the cellular, if you drew a lactate level, it would be up. But we just have to be very vigilant um, with our patients to, to, um, to see this. So, comp um, compensatory stage, whatever the reason is, our sympathetic response is releasing some epinephrine. It's sensing like, hey, something is going on, going in the reactive phase. It's gonna try to vasoconstrict whether your body will react to that or not. Our mean arterial pressure has dropped 10 to 15 millimeters of mercury. You're gonna note that heart rate change and that blood pressure change, okay? We have an increase in systemic vascular resistance. Um, we, um, we're, we're trying to shunt the perfusion to our vital organs, so you're gonna start to notice maybe some peripheral changes, some, some thready pulses peripherally. Our body's trying to keep the perfusion into our heart where we, where we need it. Bronchial um, dilation, increased respiratory rate. So if you look at my th big three, right? Mean arterial blood pressure has fallen. Um, we see an increase in heart rate, and look, we see an increased respiratory rate. This is how we know we're in comp compensation phase. 
And then our body releases some glucose because it's like, I'm going into flight or flight. Something is absolutely going on. Pumping up, getting ready for action. Okay. You might start to see, um, they might be in a metabolic alkalosis um, because they have a loss of CO2. Don't get, don't get caught up in that. We'll, get, we'll talk about that in respiratory. Um, but really focus on those, those vital signs. Fall in blood pressure, increase in heart rate, increase in respiratory. All right, now we haven't done anything to help our patient. We were busy. They were just going down the bad way and um, our, our compensation then begins to fail. It can only keep them going so, um, so, so long unless we have reversed this. Our mean arterial blood pressure is very low, less than 90 or, um, or, or um, less than 40 from our baseline. Our pulse is very rapid thin, possibly even absent peripherally. We might have to get the Doppler to, um, to hear it. Um, we might need to, gonna be difficult to measure blood pressure. We might need hemodynamic monitoring. We might need an arterial line to, 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 um, to get a blood pressure. And again, definitely a Doppler at this part. Um, the heart begins to fail. Decreased perfusion to lungs. We're, um, we'll talk about ARDS and respiratory failure because we have hypoperfusion to our lungs. So we're going to start to see other body systems shutting down. Remember that, that wonky little place between the artery and the vein, our capillaries. Capillary permeability increases. Fluid then begins to um, float into our peripheral space. You're going to see massive peripheral edema. It can't keep the fluid in the vascular space. Space. It doesn't have that ability any longer. It loses that. And because our blood pressure is so low, they're going to start to, um, more particularly in our septic patients with the ARDS and the BIC, um, blood pressure is so low that the blood starts to coagulate within the vascular system. So it uses up all of our coagulation factors. And then what happens is they bleed. They'll have a nosebleed. They'll have their IV cycle bleed. They'll have bleeding everywhere because they've used up all their clotting factors. Um, within their vascular system. And then irreversible, um, we'll talk about management in a minute, but um, really when we had that irreversible, looking back, um, noting um, that the patient did not respond to treatment, you know, what happened, um, wh what, you know, where, how could we have gotten in front of this sooner, how could we reverse whatever the cause was. So um, I have a, a great stock, shock story. Um, so, um, I haven't told this, well, I guess it's been since last month, I'm going to update So, my sister, when she was 30, my brother-in-law got a um, party bus for her. And so we were all, this was, I'm 47 now, we're exactly 10 years apart, so this is seven years ago. And so we're all like a bunch of old people out trying to act like we're young, you know, partying it up in a party bus. We're a bunch of idiots, right? So um, the whole, you know, evening goes by, and we're having a lot of fun, old people, fine, but you know, we're on the bus, riding back, and it's all my whole family. And um, my brother-in-law, great guy, not a big drinker, when he does drink, he would get hives and like a rash. And so he was like, I want my, my wife to have a great 30th birthday, you know, da, da, da. So he decided before he went out to take two Benadryl, okay? So like six o'clock, he took two Benadryl. So this is like 1 p.m., the Benadryl wears off. All of a sudden, Benadryl wears off. So all of a sudden he gets up, grabs his, grabs his chest, completely stops breathing, goes down, no pulse, not breathing, on the party bus, on the interstate back to Morton. Dead serious, this actually happened. So medical people, you know, I'm in the back, 
my husband's in the healthcare profession too. So like Brian and Lisa, Brian and Lisa, you know. So I'm like, I, I describe this as a spider monkey, like because I'm this is how I'm imagining it in my head. I'm like crawling all over people, you know, to get to the front. And you know, he's down, and I'm telling you, if you've ever seen a dead body, he was blue and he was not breathing. So um, started compressions, um, and uh, and there was another guy that jumped in mouth to mouth. So my husband and I can both say we did not have to do the mouth to mouth red. He's alive. This is better. So um, we start, you know, compressions, and he does, you know, come back around. Call the, the ambulance comes, you know, to the bus and takes him to the hospital. And he was in absolute, complete anaphylactic shock. So his blood vessels were completely vasodilated. His bronchial were completely constricted, and he had. And because that Benadryl masked, it masked all of our stages. So when that Benadryl wore off, boom, it happened, and he didn't have that ability to compensate because it all hit in those those. Um, those uh, histamines all hit his blood vessels at once and he massively um, vasodilated. However, and so anyway, he was fine. We ended up, they had to put a central line in and um, because they couldn't get his blood pressure up and they were monitoring his CVP, um, trying to manage fluids like that. The first thing we always do with shock, you can write this down, get a large bore IV in and give massive amounts of 0.9 normal fluid. Because we have to fill that vascular space. We've got to, I guess except with cardiogenic shock. Um, but the, you know, in the, in the, um, but we, have, so we've got to get circulating um, fluid, okay? That's our priority, that's our number one priority. So they did that, had to put a central line in measuring CVP and they were treating him like that. And you know, he was, ended up being fine. This is absolutely true. December 28th is her birthday. Seven years later, he had another birthday party for her. I did not go, the exact same thing happened. December 28th, this past December. The exact same thing happened. Now, he didn't take Benadryl, and so they told him afterwards, you're allergic to alcohol, you cannot drink it, you shouldn't. And for a really long time, he didn't. And then he convinced himself that he could drink these apple, what are the like, apple, apple, apple orchard things. And he was convinced that he drank one of those and didn't have it, so he was convinced he could drink those. Um, so anyway, he, that was what he was drinking. The exact same thing happened without the Benadryl. But like, during dinner, he just got up, went outside. It was in the heights somewhere, went to the ground, and they had to do CPR again. So to the day on her birthday, so only two times this happened for birthday. So anyway, that's my crazy shock story. So this is them, that's my brother-in-law, and that's my sister Amanda. Oddly enough, she reacted really well. She's my baby sister, and I even tell her this, like she was a baby. She cried all the time. I'm 10 years older than her, so all I remember her is crying all the time. She was a baby. So she's grown up quite a bit, and she reacted to the first event really well. Um, and in fact, after that, she was like, I can react in emergency. She was like so proud of herself. She went and she went to be a paramedic after that. So she's a full paramedic now. And she's thinking, do you know I'm like, her? I'm like, that's, I'm like, she looks so familiar. Yeah, that's Amanda. Yeah, that's my sister Amanda. Do you know her? You know her? I've seen her before. Oh, you've seen her. Okay. Um, anyway, so she's considering going back to nursing school, but you know, she's a little, she wants to do something different every day. I'll wait till she finally settles in. But anyway, so that's that. So septic, septic shock. Catch a septic shock early. So when we when we look at septic shock, are we do we have five minutes before we go through septic shock? Or should we blow through? And then I have a case study for septic shock that you can come back to. Why don't we should I just go through septic? This first? Okay, and then we'll come back to that. Okay. So septic shock is the most common type of distributed shock, so that's why we spend a little bit more time on it. Um, very, very high mortality rates, and unfortunately in the hospital it's one of those um, they call them nosocomial, um, that's an infection, but what is it, hospital-acquired illness, it, we, we're willing to shock. So unlike other kinds of shock, 
it is commonly associated with terrible pathological complications post pulmonary insufficiency, which turns into ARDS. Um, we'll talk about that. DIC, disseminated intervascular coagulation, and MOD, multi-organ dysfunction syndrome. In the olden days, we used to call that multi-system organ failure, but it's, you know, all So terrible outcomes with septic shock. So we have our insult, we have our bacteria, our microbes. So, you know, we have our insult, whatever the infection was. Um, have you ever had a patient where you guys have gotten your, your um, pre-op, your, your diagnosis for your day before, and it's SIRS, systemic inflammatory response syndrome. So SIRS is just basically your, the body's having an re inflammatory response to something. Most likely there's an infection of some sort. So we do a baseline assessment when they come in. Do they, are they high risk for sepsis? So a lot of times when we look at admission um, in information, we look at it. So some clinical response to infection response, we look at temperature. Temperature greater than 100.4 or very low temperature, 96.8. Heart rate greater than 90. Respiratory rate greater than 20. Or abnormal white blood cell count. It's kind of a way to cluster data upon admission to say, hey, is this throwing up a red flag? Are they at risk for sepsis? Answers. So, um, oh, same thing on my next slide. So the numbers might be just a little bit different. So low temperature or high temperature, heart rate greater than 90, respiratory rate, PCO2, low PCO2s, white blood cell count. They also look at the immature bands. The immature bands basically tell them there is something going on. The body is loading up because it's going to need a whole bunch of mature white blood cells as soon as possible. So immature bands are baby white blood cells that are going to develop. So it's a nice way to break down and see is there something else going on. Change in level of consciousness or mental status. <coughs> Increased blood glucose in the absence of being diabetic. Why is it important to note that in the absence of being diabetic? Absolutely, it should not be increased. There is something else going on if their body didn't, if their body didn't. Low platelet count, are we heading toward DIC? Is that, you know, we look at that. Serum lactate greater than two, okay? So important ones to look at, and when we look at my case study, it is a nice way to kind of put all this into action. Causes, well, broadly classified as infectious, non-infectious. Um, it could be a wound, it could be, you know, really, um, a lot of different things. So when it's when SIRS is due to infection, it is considered sepsis. Um, so you can have sepsis without being in septic shock. Okay, so sepsis might be a systemic infection um, where maybe they do blood cultures and they're positive. It becomes shock when other organs become involved and you have hypotension, you have low perfusion. Non-infectious burn, pancreatitis, ischemia, hemorrhage, other things can cause SIRS. Okay. Um, so severe sepsis, all of your symptoms, hypoperfusion, oliguria, mental confusion, higher serum lactates, or hypotension, or organ dysfunction. It becomes septic shock when it is hypotension, non-responsive to fluid resuscitation. 0.9 normal saline, a liter, and you're not seeing any response. You're not seeing any changes. So here it's still responsive. You're giving some IV fluid and it's bringing your blood pressure up. Down here with septic shock, we've got a major problem because even our fluid 
um, are, not, are not helping our blood pressure. So again, large bore IV, um, even in severe sepsis, they will still respond to fluids. You, even in patients in severe sepsis, you give them 0.9 normal saline, um, their, their body will still respond to fluids. There's always this question, and in there, if you look in your ATI book, the, the question is still there. It always says, what's the priority with septic shock? And two options are always 0.9 normal saline or IV fluid, and the other one is antibiotic. I'm going to disagree with ATI on this because ATI says it's antibiotic. It absolutely is antibiotic. However, um, so ATI says um, antibiotic. According to Joint Commission National Patient Safety, they recommend the first IV administration of antibiotics within one hour of septic shock. Okay? Why would you wait an hour to give your patient IV fluid when they're hypotensive and symptomatic? Okay? So it's a priority, but it's not the first thing you're going to do. What if you need to culture them? What if you need to get blood cultures? What if you need to culture their wound? You want to do that culture before you start the antibiotics, or else you're not going to know if the antibiotic you're giving is, is responsive. You have to so. start giving fluid before you do antibiotics anyway, right? Well, that's a good point. Absolutely. You have to have IV access before you have antibiotics anyway. That's even a better. I'm going to add that to my piece of rationale. But um, I don't like that ATI question, and I will disagree with it all day long. So, And I have rationale for it, too. So, Okay, so then after... Um, IV fluid, then we can move on to our pressors, our dopamine, our dobutamine, our inotropes, you know, if we're trying to increase cardiac output that way. All right, so I'm not going to go through our whole, you know, we have our insult, our inflammatory response, then it, um, we have increased capillary permeability, um, and we have relative hypovolemia because your blood vessels just massively vasodilate, and that's why it's relative and we have decreased cardiac output and decreased tissue perfusion. I'm going to show this little video on DIC, and it's simply um, when we get to that decreased tissue perfusion, that's when we're at risk for rolling into DIC. It's a one-minute video, but it does a fantastic job kind of showing um, what DIC is going to look like. If you have a patient in DIC and you're looking at lab values, what do you suppose your platelet count would be? Super low. Super low, absolutely. You've used up all your platelets. They are gone. What about the fibrinogen? Low. Low also. You've used it up. It's going to be gone. Good. peripheral occlusions because you have all of these intravascular coagulation.
really look, it does a nice job of it. And so if you want to know more about DIC, um, take a look at that. Um, so it's inappropriate activation of cladding cascade um, because of the endotoxin, you know, problems with the blood vessels. We can treat it a couple different ways. We can get fresh frozen plasma, platelets, trying to help them clot. And there's discussion and there's, you know, pros and cons of using it, but um, to give heparin. Heparin interferes with the clotting cascade and prevent further clotting. So you would think, you know, I'm already bleeding, why would I get heparin? Well, it gets in the way of that clotting cascade to prevent further clotting and further using up of your clotting factors. Um, all right, so when we're looking at septic shock, there are two phases. So this is when we're talking about catching shock early. Our early, our warm phase, our blood pressure is, um, so when we were talking before, those were stages. So when we're looking at stages of shock, all types of shock go through the same stages. With septic shock, they break it down into phases, early phase and cold phase. Um, so uh, it's just a difference of looking at blood pressure is normal to low, blood pressure is very low. Um, our pulse increased and thready, and then we become beyond thready, we're just super tachycardic. Um, respirations are rapid and deep, so you might be breathing at like 30, deep and heavy. You know, if you're trying to blow off CO2 because they're alkalotic, and when we get into respiratory, we'll hit those, you know, those things. But here, they have lost that ability to compensate. It's rapid, shallow, and dysmic. They're panting as, <laughs> as opposed to those deep breaths. They're very different looking. Their skin is still warm and flushed in this early phase. Um, late, cool, pale edematous. They've lost the capillaries, um, so the fluid shifts out into the, into the edema area, and we are not peripherally perfusing very well. Alert and oriented, they are altered. They have le lethargic. Your output is normal. You're not put allegoric to anteric. Increased temp, decreased temp. Might be normal to decrease. Um, weakness, chills, weakness, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and um, decreased CVP. Super decreased CVP on the cold. All right. Um, I feel like there's assessments of um, all types of shock, manifestations, pre-existing problems. We've got to figure out what is the what is the source, what is the problem. So we're gonna, we, if we're trying to figure out a patient in septic shock, we're gonna check, if, if it's not obvious, we're gonna check everything that could possibly be infected. We're gonna look at their urine. We're gonna look at, if they have an IV, we're gonna look at their IV site. If they have a wound, we're gonna check the wound. If they have a central line, we're, check, we're culturing that. We're gonna do regular blood cultures. Really, um, I have found patients that have been septic, just they've had like an empyema, or they've had like a pus-filled sac in maybe an old wound, or even in the lung lining. So patients can, or uh, pancreatitis patients can get really septic. Um, they might have like an empyema or an infection um, within the sac of the pancreas. So really just have to keep looking until we find what's infected and then get after it. If it's surgery, if it's an antibiotic, whatever it is. We are not stopping until we find it. Um, we talked about labs, obviously that lactate. Um, put some blood on hold depending on um, if it's a hypovolemic. Um, blood cultures, lactate drawn first as um, uh, the longer you have the tourniquet on, it can, it can increase lactic acid levels. So if you're gonna draw your labs, you want it, the lactic acid to be the one, first one. We are culturing everything, sputum, urine, wounds, drains, devices, everything we possibly can. Oh, I know my other one. I had a pocket of a permanent pacemaker become infected and it caused my patient to be septic because of that. JP drain, triple lumen sites. Um, 
everything that you could possibly think of. All right, focus on the causative agent. What is it? If it's a central line, remove it, whatever it is. So support of circulation in this order. Fluids, vasopressors, inotropes, corticosteroids to stop that infection. Prevent and treat emergent complications. Every patient's gonna have different complications emerge. Um, if suspected infection, um, if we don't necessarily know it, they might give a broad spectrum antibiotic, like vancomycin is a broad spectrum antibiotic. Um, but again, uh, within one hour, um, we, we need to get that antibiotic going. Um, I have all kinds of rationale for all of our um, you know, things, but I don't wanna get too far into it. Really, it's just the big process of sepsis and what goes on with it. Um, we are going to use fluids to support fluid resuscitation. We want to keep that CVP. CVP is, a, is the hemodynamic number we're going to use to treat our patients. It's one of the big numbers we're going to use. So we want to keep that CVP between 8 to 12. Unfortunately, a lot of times it's much lower when they come in. So we use a combination of the CVP and the mean arterial pressure, and we look at those to hopefully trend up in the right direction. Um, we're going to give isotonic solutions. We like normal saline, not as much as LR. LR actually has some lactate in it, so you're gonna see point-in-nine normal saline used a little bit more than LR. Not D5W, because when D5W, when you use the glucose, it becomes a hypotonic solution, um, so it doesn't stay in the vascular space as well. Might use hypertonic saline, um, uh, but all eventually will leave that intravascular space Unless we give something a little harder, albumin, husband, dextrose, or a point or a blood, if it's blood that we need to give. Um, so I've said this a million times. Point nine saline bolus or um, a liter over 30 minutes. If no response, is second bolus. Blood transfusion. We spend a full day on this in sim. The biggest thing I need you to know for this exam: if you're priming your blood tubing, what solution do you use? to prime your blood tubing and rinse your blood tubing. Saline, point nine normal saline. Can you use LR or dextrose? No. no. That's the most important thing you need to know for blood transfusion. Okay. Um, uh, okay, so our vasopressors, um, all IV medications that are going to be used to increase your, um, your cardiac output by bringing your blood vessels together. Um, it's very important if you're giving a vasopressor or even an inotrope that these are given via central line. It's at all humanly possible. These are, they are major vasoconstrictors. So if, they, if you're giving them peripherally and they sneak into your, into your interstitial, they will cause necrosis and tissue death. And I've seen it where it'll cover an entire arm. Um, so with our inotropes, with our vasopressors, um, we're going to, um, to, so an inotrope would be fantastic for a patient in cardiogenic shock, where our vasopressors might be used a little bit more in our septic shock if we're trying to vasoconstrict our blood vessels. Okay. Complications. ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome. Um, fluid builds up in those alveoli, um, and it's because of the inflammatory response. So if you're listening to these patients' lungs and you have fluid in the alveoli, what are they gonna sound like? Crackles, that's the, everybody can agree on that. If there's fluid in your lungs, you're gonna hear crackles in your lungs. So that's an early sign of ARDS. 
The lungs become very um, rigid and not, they're not compliant. They, they have a really hard time ventilating. Acute renal failure, GI complications. You have GI bleeds because you know your your blood's being ported to the to the um, you know to the core and your GI gets left. So generally, a patient after septic shock, a few days they end up with some sort of nasty GI bleed. DIC we already talked about, multiple organ dysfunction syndrome. That is simply multi-system organ failure. Your other, your other um, organs are shutting down. Acute respiratory distress syndrome, we're gonna talk about this again in um, respiratory, but in this case, it is a complication that is most often associated with septic shock versus the other types of shock. Difficult to mechanically ventilate, go tidal volumes. You don't have to know all of this stuff. We're gonna hit it again in respiratory. Just a little treat for the future, you know. Okay, renal failure, look at our kidneys, look at what's going on there, keep kidney functioning. We might need to put them on dialysis, if that's the case. Um, shock, control that blood sugar, um, watch their bowel, breathing pain, uh, look at their stomach. We do try to get enteral feedings going as soon as possible because um, if you don't use your GI tract, you have more complications with it. So early GI feeding is, is, is a lot of research. Um, going into that. Stress ulcers happen if we don't um, get it naturally. And most frequent cause of death in the non-coronary is multi-organ multi dysfunction syndrome, mortality rates. And it just means progressive impairment of two or more organ systems is all that means. Okay. End of life, communicate with family, discuss and delight of, of what they're